Well, good to be with all of you this morning. I'm sorry for the situation that Dave is ill and uh, join with Jeff in praying for their family. Um, I didn't know until Friday afternoon late that uh, I would be filling in and so wasn't able to print out an outline, but if you need a blank sheet of paper, uh, there are some of these outside this door over there and then in the entryway you can jot down some notes and the uh, outline will be up on the screen as we work through God's word. I thought we would look this morning at another psalm, just a couple back from where Jeff read. Psalm 97, if you would, if you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it, turn there. Otherwise, I think the words will be up here. And uh, I'm still stuck with the New American Standard Bible, which I've used for the last 55 or more years. So uh, that's what I'm going to be using and reading from. I checked out the ESV, and there aren't very many significant differences. So if you got that version, that's fine, or another version. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Would you bow with me in prayer? Thank you, Lord, for your inspired word written many, many centuries ago and yet still as relevant and applicable to us today as it was then. It's as relevant as today's news for our souls. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would superabound in using it far beyond my limited ability to proclaim it and that your spirit would sow the seeds of the word in every heart and life that not only today but in the days ahead it would bear fruit unto eternal life in every heart and so we give you this time in Jesus name amen you know at first glance you can read Psalm 97 1 and Seems easy enough. You read it and move right on. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. 
But if you stop and think about it for a moment, that verse raises all kinds of trouble and difficulty. Does the Lord reign over a worldwide pandemic that's killed millions of people around the globe? Does the Lord reign over terrorists who are blowing up innocent people in the Middle East or raiding villages in Nigeria and burning them to the ground, slaughtering all the men and women and taking little girls captive as sex slaves? Does the Lord reign over floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and landslides such as happened outside of Rio de Janeiro this week that took the lives of many? Does he reign over famine and starvation and malaria? Bringing it a little closer to home, does the Lord reign over a loss of jobs because of the pandemic or the economy tanking? Uh, does the Lord reign for people who have lost everything financially? Does he reign if you've been diagnosed with a prolonged disease or maybe you've been fighting it for some years or over premature death of a loved one? Bringing it even closer, does the Lord reign over the tensions in your marriage or over the struggles you're having raising a teenager who may not be totally cooperative at this point? Does he reign just over the minor frustrating circumstances that you encountered this week? See, it all gets kind of practical, doesn't it, when you consider that verse in a little more depth. And it even gets a little more practical and maybe convicting when you realize that the psalmist's application is not just that the Lord reigns, but that the Lord reigns let the earth rejoice. You could fit your name in there. Let you rejoice because the Lord reigns. He doesn't say the Lord reigns, uh, grit your teeth and grimly endure it. He certainly does not say the Lord reigns, shake your fist at him and get your anger out toward the Lord as some Psychologists tell you to do with your anger. No, that's not what he says. He clearly says the Lord reigns. Let the earth, all the people of the earth, rejoice. Do you? See, it gets kind of convicting, doesn't it? The psalm also reveals, though, that there are many people who don't rejoice. You notice in verse 3, some are his adversaries. And God is going to destroy them by his righteous judgment. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries. And then I think the mountains that melt like wax are a poetic way of uh, representing those who oppose the Lord, who are as mighty as a mountain, and they just collapse when the Lord shows up and his judgment comes. And some, in verses 6 and 7, ser serve idols, and they're going to be ashamed when they see his glory. And then in verse 10, some of the wicked clearly attack the godly ones. Uh, and they ultimately will not succeed either. 
So there's a two-sided message here. Summing it up, the Lord reigns, because the Lord reigns over all, on the one hand, his saints, those who follow Jesus, should rejoice. But, on the other hand, sinners who are still in their rebellion should fear his coming judgment. We don't know who wrote this psalm. Some think it was David. Others say maybe it was written after the exile when the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon. It occurs in a group of psalms, starting at Psalm 93 and running down through Psalm 100, that joyfully emphasize God's kingship over all. That phrase, the Lord reigns, occur occurs in Psalm 93.1, in Psalm 96.10, here in 97.1, again in 99.1, and it's also in Psalms 47.8 and 146.10. And Psalm 97.1 is actually piecing together two verses from the previous psalm. If you look back at Psalm 96, um, verse 10, It says the Lord reigns, and then in verse 11, it says, let the earth rejoice. There are several outlines of the psalm that have been suggested. I'm just following the one that is in the New American Standard Bible indicated by bold type in my Bible of each verse starting a new paragraph. Um, Each of the three paragraphs emphasizes this theme of joy The first paragraph says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice and bow in fear because of his coming judgment. That's verses one through six. Then in verses seven through nine, the Lord reigns, let idolaters be ashamed, but let his people rejoice. Again, that theme of joy comes through. And then the final stanza, um, the Lord reigns, let those who love him hate evil and be glad in him, and that's verses 10 through 12. So let's work through it together. The first uh, stanza, or the first paragraph, shows that the Lord reigns, and then the consequence is, let the earth rejoice and bow in fear because of his coming judgment. And the psalmist states the theme in verse 1, the Lord reigns and let the earth rejoice. The second line, let the many islands be glad. The islands, according to Derek Kidner, who is uh, probably my favorite commentator on the Psalms, I'll just say, if you don't own a Psalms commentary and you want to buy one, buy, it's a little short two-volume thing by Derek Kidner, and he is succinct, but has all sorts of insight, and he's got a number of other Old Testament commentaries I would recommend. But here Kidner says that the islands represent the innumerable, the remote innumerable outposts of mankind. And so the psalmist is showing us the Lord doesn't just reign over Israel, the Lord reigns over the entire earth. And there's an implicit prophecy here because those who dwell in the remote outposts of the world cannot possibly be glad in the Lord's reign unless the gospel goes to them. And so there's an anticipation here of what Dave is preaching on, on Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, that the gospel will spread 
to every tongue and tribe and nation and people as those who have met the Lord go out and proclaim the good news. And the same extension of the gospel to all is implicit in verse 6, which says, all the peoples have seen his glory. Now that may be a reference back to Psalm 19.1, which we read here in church a few weeks ago. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse shows forth his handiwork. So all the world should be able to look to the sky and say, there is somebody great who made all of this. It didn't just happen. Um, but I think maybe more so it's pointing ahead to the cross because there is nothing that shows the glory of God as um, magnificent as the cross does. Because at the cross, God's justice was satisfied in that Jesus bore the penalty of sinners and God's love and mercy were magnified in that how could he die for us who were rebels against him? And so I think it points ahead to the message of the cross and it, explicit in the gospel and the message of the cross is that you must submit your life to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If he died on the cross for your sins, you've got to follow him with all your heart. Now, the Lord's reign, in fact, can only be a source of joy to you as you submit to his rightful rule over your life. There are atheists who challenge God's reign, and they accuse God of being the author of evil. They say things like, well, if the Lord reigns over natural disasters and disease, then he's not only the author of evil, but he is evil himself. And there were a number of books written in the first part of the 21st century here by uh, um, atheists and agnostics and others who are challenging Christianity. Uh, one of the most famous is Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he accuses the God of the Old Testament as being, quote, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. And uh, he goes on with blasphemous name-calling. He says that this god is a megalomaniacal, sadomasochist, uh, a capriciously malevolent bully. And this is the same man who, if you ever saw that movie Expelled, with a very straight face, he tells Ben Stein in that movie that he thinks life on this planet began when aliens came here from outer space. And you're going, okay, then where did the aliens get life, dummy? Um, you just want to say, this guy is writing books that are supposedly intellectual, attacking the Christian faith. But, you know, as you think about it, taking God out of the equation doesn't solve the problem of evil. You can take God out of the equation and little kids still get sick and die of disease. And little kids still get abused by terrible parents who don't love them. And, and you know, all, all manner of evil still goes on. Little kids still get blown up by terrorists. And if you take God out of the equation, what you have done is removed hope. Because there's no gospel then. There's no hope for those little kids. There's no hope for those evil parents to repent and experience the, the new life in Christ. And you take away justice. 
because those who don't repent will, so what? They didn't suffer any consequence. Maybe they stole all your money and killed your kids and they're happy and there's no justice. It's only when God is in the equation that there's hope and in the future, as the psalm proclaims, there's justice. But without God, it's a pretty bleak world. I mean, maybe you were lucky enough to be born in America, so you have a little better life than the kid born in Afghanistan. But then on the other hand, maybe you get disease when you're five years old and suffer and die. You know, it's just a happenstance, luck of the draw kind of world if you take God out of the picture. Uh, Jesus <clears throat> addressed this problem of innocent people suffering uh, from evil tyrants and from natural disasters in Luke chapter 13. You might remember the story. Some people brought up to Jesus, the Galileans, and Herod, while these people, these Jewish believers, were worshiping God, the Galileans, or I mean Herod, excuse me, Pilate, slaughtered them. And um, then Jesus mentions another. A tower in Siloam fell on people and 18 people lost their lives by the collapse of this tower. And Jesus um, makes the application. He says, do you suppose that these people were worse sinners than others? And then he answers it. In fact, he answers it twice in Luke 13, verse 3. In verse 5, and he says, I tell you, no, but unless you too repent, uh, you will perish. And so his word is, we're all sinners. We all deserve to die. Uh, because these things happened to these people, they weren't worse sinners than we are. We're all going to die and face God's judgment unless we repent. And so the key question is, have you repented of your sin and fled to the cross of Christ for mercy. In spite of the fact that God's sovereignty is clearly taught in the Bible, uh, it's tragic that there are many professing Christians today who fight against it. They don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And uh, they, even some of them I've heard, join with the atheist in saying, well, if God is sovereign over all, then he's the author of evil. And so they say he can't be sovereign over all, or uh, there's a teaching called open theism taught by one of the biggest churches in town here uh, that says, well, God means, well, he doesn't like suffering, but because of free will, he can't do anything about it. You know, he, he's rooting for you, but he's bound by that free will. And so... Basically, then, man becomes sovereign. Uh, there was a preacher by the name of Asahel Nettleton back in the early, late uh, 1700s, early 1800s. He lived from 1783 to 1843. He was an American evangelist, and he's got a very insightful sermon on Psalm 97, verse 1. And he says that God exercises absolute control over both the natural and moral world and that no event, great or small, ever takes place which is not included in his eternal purpose and is not made to subserve his ultimate designs. And he supports that with 
Ephesians 1.11, he could have picked many verses, but Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. He goes on and applies it by saying, if that doctrine is not true, then there's no point in your prayers. I mean, why pray that God would save your loved ones if God cannot operate on their hearts and change their hard heart into a responsive heart? It's pointless to pray if he can't do that. And why pray that God would restrain the wicked if that would violate their free will? <laughs> you see, God is sovereign over all these things, even when we don't understand them. And <clears throat> Nettleton argues uh, that it is a cause for great joy to believers that God actually does govern all of his creation, including wicked men and demons, because it would be a very gloomy world, a very frightening world, if you thought, ah, God isn't sovereign over these evil forces, and they got one up on him. Uh, what kind of a God is that? And so there is great joy in this truth. Now let me apply that to you. There may be difficult, not maybe, there undoubtedly are difficult circumstances in every row of seats in this congregation this morning. Some of them are major. Some of them are just more minor, but there is no such thing as a person who is problem-free, trouble-free, and just enjoying the life without any trials at all. And <clears throat> it could be the doctor just told you, this is serious, we hope we can get this disease, but we're not sure. That's pretty major. It might be as minor as uh, your transmission's gone. It's going to be 2000 bucks to replace your transmission. You know, those kind of problems that we all face from time to time. But you have a choice. You can stop long enough to say, Lord, I'm glad you reign over this, and I can trust that you know what you're doing in this situation, and then rejoice. Or... Uh, if you don't do that, you can grumble and become depressed and become anxious and become angry. I contend that every trial, whether minor frustration or the major ones, is an opportunity that God gives us to lay more uh, hold and to go more in deep with the unfathomable riches of Christ, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.8. We know him this much, but I think we can all testify during the trial, we went deeper. We went deeper. In my experience, though, the easier trials, and put that in quotes, to lay hold of the Lord are the serious ones, because I don't have any option there. I know I'm in trouble. I have to lay hold of the Lord. The more difficult ones to apply this truth to are that irritating slow driver in front of me when I'm late for an appointment. You know, why didn't he step on his gas? And, you know, those kind of little frustrations that happen throughout the week, they're the ones where I find it hard to stop and say, Lord, you reign. You reign over this, and you've ordained this for my sanctification, so 
Amen, Lord. I'll rejoice in you and trust that you're going to work all things together for good for me through this. Then the psalmist turns to the flip side of the theme in verses 2 through 6, and he shows that those that are not subject to um, the Lord should fear his coming in judgment. See verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. Uh, That picture is largely a repeat of um, God's appearance at Mount Sinai when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. It's recorded in Exodus 19, 16 to 19, and I wanted to read those verses just to show you the parallel. Here's how Exodus 19, 16 and following reads. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet blew or grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. You have the same phenomena later in Exodus chapter 34 where Moses went up to plead with mercy, with God for mercy for the people who had offered the golden calf, bowed before the golden calf. Um, It's later a similar scene in Judges chapter 5 when the uh, Jewish forces under Deborah routed the enemy and the same kind of language is used. And then as you read through the Bible, the prophets often had visions or encounters of God, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Micah, Habakkuk and others there. And it was all the same that it was a fearful and traumatic experience. So like Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone. You know, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And so they didn't take God's presence casually. They feared it. And clearly, the God of the whole earth is not one just to be uh, shrugged off or taken lightly. James Boyce, in his treatment of this psalm, observes, he says, God is not some great heavenly buddy or pal. And then he adds, in fact, the common lightness of many in approaching God is not a sign of their close acquaintance with him, as they probably suppose, but of the fact that they hardly know God at all. 
One time I heard Pastor John MacArthur tell about a friend, a pastor friend of his, who told John that Jesus appeared to him often in the morning as he was in the bathroom shaving. And John questioned him on that and said, are you kidding me? He, he appears to you while you're in the bathroom shaving? And the guy said, yeah, yeah, quite often. And I love John's comeback. He said incredulously, and you keep shaving? <laughs> I mean, if Jesus really appeared to that man, he would be like the Apostle John in, in Revelation chapter 1. John was the apostle who laid his head on Jesus' chest in the Last Supper, and when he saw Jesus in his glory in Revelation 1, he says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Or like the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road when the Lord appeared to him, he fell down and was struck blind. I mean, meeting the risen Lord in his glory is a frightening experience. You know, Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, they, they didn't know what to do with all that. Uh, again, to quote Derek Kidner, he succinctly sums up here the symbolism of our text. He says, clouds in thick darkness warn of God's unapproachable holiness and hiddenness to presumptuous man, while the fire and lightnings reveal a holiness that is also devouring and irresistible. There is no escape. To speak of mountains melting is to see the most immemorial landmarks disappear, the most solid of refuges dissolve. And so because of God's power, none of his enemies will escape when Jesus returns in judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will defeat all of his enemies. Read the book of Revelation, the beast and the false prophet who held sway over the masses of humanity will be seized and thrown into the lake of fire, and sinners will be pleading for the rocks and the hills to fall on them and save them from the wrath of the Lamb. So it's going to be a frightening thing. Now, let me again underscore the important lesson here in our text. God's absolute sovereignty over everything, whether it be our salvation or over evil people or over difficult trials, should be a cause of great joy and not a cause of stumbling. And I know of Christians who dodge the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. They don't like it. In fact, I know of pastors They've told me personally, oh, I don't touch that one. That's controversial. You know, I, I don't preach that. Well, what do you do? Rip Romans 9, 10, 11 out of your Bible? I mean, along with everything from Genesis to Revelation, it's not a minor truth in the Bible. It's there. And here's the point. God didn't put it there to cause you to stumble. He put it there to cause you to rejoice. Do you? You know, there's one time in the Gospels, and only one that I have found, where it says Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Spirit. You know where it is? It's in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus is rejoicing there that God in his sovereignty has hidden his truth from some and revealed it to the babes. And it's God's sovereignty that he's rejoicing in. 
And if Jesus rejoices in God's sovereignty and you love Jesus, guess what? You should be rejoicing in the truth that he is Lord of all the earth. He is sovereign. And the only way you're going to rejoice in that is not when you got it all figured out logically, because you won't. As Paul exclaims there at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depth of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his ways and beyond understanding, you know, are his truths. Um, You can't understand it. Here's what you can do. You submit to it. You submit to it and say, "I, I don't understand how God can be sovereign and people can exercise their will, but it's both in the Bible. And so I teach both. And I found great joy many, many years ago as a college student. I was boxing with this fighting Paul, I thought, until one night as I was wrestling in Romans 9, it was like God said, you're not fighting Paul, you're fighting me, because I inspired that. And I kind of went gulp, and uh, I submitted to it, and I've had great joy in God's sovereignty ever since, so I encourage you to do the same. The second stanza, the first one is, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice and bow in fear because of his coming judgment. The second stanza makes the same point, the Lord reigns, and then the application is, let idolaters be ashamed, but let his people rejoice. He keeps coming back to that theme of joy. First, in verse 7, the Lord reigns, let idolaters be ashamed. See verse 7, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves in idols. Worship him, all you gods. And the reason for their shame is they've put their trust in something that can't deliver them. It's a statue. Or maybe it's the demon behind the statue, but demons cannot give salvation. Now, there's debate about the phrase, worship him, all you gods. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done about 200 years before Christ, translates the word God with angels. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 6 He either cites that verse or Deuteronomy 32, 43 in the Septuagint when he says in Hebrews 1, 6, let all the angels of God worship him. And while gods in this psalm could be a reference to uh, angels or perhaps demons, I think if you look at the context of verse 7, um, it's parallel, idols are parallel to the gods. And so the psalmist here, I think, is using sarcasm. He's saying, you who worship idols, let all your so-called gods, you know, worship the true and living God, uh, the Lord. Although, of course, they're inanimate and they can't worship anything. But even if these idolaters were consciously worshiping demons, demons are subject to the sovereign God. And when Jesus came, the demons were subject to him. But the fact is this, we may not set up little idols and offer incense to them and worship them, although, did you know Flagstaff has one store downtown that's devoted entirely to selling idols? It's shocking to know, in an intellectual college town, 
there is a store that sells nothing but idols. You go, good night. What kind of place is this? But anyway, even if we don't set up idols and pray to them, if you're not serving the living God, you're serving an idol, and that's the idol of self, or maybe the idol of money, or the idol of sex, or the idol of alcohol, or the idol of drugs, or whatever, but self is at the root of it. You have to clear the throne of self and enthrone Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he invites the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, to come to the cross, and he promises you'll find mercy because he is that sort of a God. But as Jesus pointed out, you either serve God or you serve mammon, but you don't serve both, a little bit of both. If you're not serving God with a whole heart, you're serving idols. And so the psalmist says we should be ashamed if that's us. But then in the verses 8 and 9, he returns to this theme of joy and says, The Lord reigns. Let his people rejoice. Verse 8, Zion heard this and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now these verses might be celebrating some unnamed victory that Israel had experienced on the battlefield that God granted. But I believe the final fulfillment of verses 8 and 9 still awaits. And Jesus promised he will return in power and glory on the clouds. Every eye shall see him. And he is the one who will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then the entire world will realize, for many it will be too late, that the risen Lord Jesus is the one the psalmist is writing about here, who is the Lord most high above all the earth. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1.21, he is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And so we, as his people, should rejoice that Jesus is going to triumph over all the forces of evil someday. So the first stanza made the point, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice and bow in uh, fear before him, verses 1 through 6. The second stanza then, verses 7 through 9, the Lord reigns, let idolaters be ashamed, but let his people rejoice. And then in the final stanza, the psalmist makes the point, the Lord reigns, let those who love him hate evil and be glad in him. And you'll notice in verses 10 through 12, first there's a command in verse 10, then the rest of verse 10 and verse 11 list three blessings for those who obey the command, and then finally there's a summary in verse 12. First, the command in verse 10a, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Now that command is obvious and it's perfectly logical, and yet it kind of jars you when you read this psalm. You're kind of reading through about rejoicing and having a good time, and all of a sudden, hate evil. You go, whoa. 
You know, we don't think of God as a hater. We think of God as a lover, don't we? Did you know that God hates? God hates evil with a passion. And did you know that you cannot love the Lord, who is absolutely holy, and love your sin? You can't. If you love the Lord, you hate your sin, and you fight against your sin, because you realize my sin put Jesus, the sinless Son of God, on the cross. And if you're hanging on to sin and thinking you're a Christian, uh, and you're not fighting sin, you better go back to square one and find out, do I really know and love Jesus Christ as my Savior? The command jars us, though, because, again, I think Christians today overemphasize God's love and they underemphasize God's holiness and his judgment against all sin. Uh, Psalm 5, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6, says this of God. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. The Lord abhors those who love their sin. And so it's a process, I grant, and even in the most godly of saints, there's this perverse attraction towards sin as long as we're in this body. But my point is this, you gotta fight it. You gotta have a war against those impulses toward sin and if you don't you don't love the Lord you're fighting your sin if you love God and then the psalmist promises three blessings for those who hate evil and love the Lord in verse the end of verse 10 and verse 11 preservation and light and gladness first he says God preserves the soul's of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And that implies, as Kidner points out, that hating evil might be costly because it creates enemies. If you love Jesus and people hate Jesus, guess what? They're not going to like you. You're going to be unpopular. Uh, I first preached Psalm 97 back in 2009. I was sitting in the office preparing my notes for this sermon and the phone rang, and it was my good friend Barney in Nepal. He didn't call me very often. And uh, Barney told me that he had received a phone call earlier that day from a militant Hindu group that said they were going to kill him, and uh, they were going to kill his family because they were Christians, and they were going to bomb his church that coming Sunday or Saturday. They actually worship on Saturday in Nepal. Uh, and Barney called me to pray with him. And I told him, I said, Barney, I'm preparing a sermon on Psalm 97 that talks about the Lord delivering uh, the souls of his godly ones from the hand of the wicked. And he said he read Psalm 97 to his family that morning in their family devotional time. And so we prayed, but as I hung up, I thought, it's not costing me that much to preach Psalm 97 because 
At that point, in fact, in all my years of ministry, nobody was threatening my life or threatening to bomb our church or all of those kinds of things. Uh, But here's a brother who's right in the thick of it, of the battle. And there are brothers and sisters like that this morning in China, North Korea, uh, in the Middle East, in Nigeria, in other places where there is persecution. And so we have to pray for one another and we have to realize sometimes deliverance comes through martyrdom. You see that at the end of Hebrews 11. You're reading all these triumphant stories of faith and then without skipping a beat, the author says, some were sawn in two. Huh? Some were sawn in two? Yeah, and some were killed in other ways and others, you know, live in caves and holes in the ground and he goes on and all these, he said, had faith but they didn't get the reward that's reserved for when Jesus comes. And so even if enemies are evil and they kill our bodies, as Jesus says in Luke 12, don't fear them. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. He says, I tell you, fear him. And so who knows? We're in a time when persecution, I think, is certainly on the horizon for American Christians So steel yourself. You may face it, especially those of you who are younger, before the Lord returns. The Lord not only gives preservation, but also the psalmist says he gives light. Light is sown sown like seed for the righteous. Um, It's an interesting picture. Sowing light. You know, it may be like a seed where it doesn't come all at once. It grows up eventually but it implies that we'll have enough light for each step of our journey with the Lord. And of course, the source of that light is right here. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and the light to my path, Psalm 119, verse 105. And then the Lord promises gladness of heart for the upright there in verse, at the end of verse 11. Uh, Upright in heart is a synonym for godly ones up in verse 10 and for the righteous in verse 11. And it shows us that genuine godliness is not a matter of rituals, not a matter of church attendance, not a matter of checking off your quiet time that you did it seven times this week. It's a matter of your heart. Is your heart right with the Lord? And one of the most important spiritual life lessons I've ever learned is you've got to have your heart right with God. Deal with your heart every morning. Make sure that you're in tune with the Lord on the heart level, that there's no sin that you're hanging on to and that you find your joy in the Lord and in the gospel every morning. And Godliness, contrary to what a lot of people think, is the pathway to joy. That's what he's talking about. Gladness for the upright in heart. Satan fakes you out and says, sin is going to give you joy. And at first, maybe it does, and it leads you in. But then you're captive to it, and you can't get rid of it. And being a slave is no fun at all, and it destroys your life. So 
resist the lie that sin gives you happiness and fulfillment or that godliness is a drag. Godliness is the source of great joy. Sin is the source of great pain. And then there's a final summary, a command in verse 12. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Did you notice that even though gladness is promised in verse 11, it's commanded in verse 12? And the Bible is like that a lot of times, isn't it? It, command, or it promises something, but then you've got to lay hold of the promise by faith and apply it to your life through obedience. It's not automatic. If you've read much of John Piper, you know that he talks about fighting for joy. And I like that phrase. But don't miss that the gladness we have is in the Lord. It's not in a circumstance. It's not in a relationship. It's not in having a pile of money. Gladness of heart is in the Lord. And the joy is only for the righteous, for those who walk in obedience to him. That last phrase in the Hebrew is literally, <clears throat> give thanks for the memory of his holiness. And it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 in verse 15, when God, uh, Moses is at the burning bush, and God reveals himself to him there as Yahweh, and says, that is my name, it means I am, and then he says, that is my memorial name for you for generations to come. And <clears throat> so when we think on the Lord as Moses there at the burning bush, God said, take your sandals off, Moses. You're on holy ground. And he stood before the Lord, and it was a fearful thing. And it would be a fearful thing to think of God and his holiness except for the fact that we're covered by the blood of his son Jesus at the cross. And if you don't have that assurance, I encourage you, I exhort you, put your trust in Christ right now. You can come to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned, boku, so much. But you offer mercy to the chief of sinners, and here I am, Lord. Give me mercy, save my soul. And God is pleased to save the soul of those who call out to Jesus. Now, everything I've been saying this morning, some people will come back and say, well, you're just preaching pie in the sky when you die. And my answer to that always is the same. Yes, you are going to die. Would you like pie with that or no pie? <laughs> Death is not uncertain. Death is pretty certain. So you either have joy forever in the presence of God in heaven or you've got torment forever in the fires of hell, uh, that's a no-brainer. Come to Christ. Come to Christ while you can. He offers mercy to every sinner who trusts in Christ. The great British preacher C.H. Spurgeon cites the story of a man named Whitelock. He was Oliver Cromwell's envoy to Sweden back in 1653. And one night as he was waiting to sail... He was so distracted by the troubles of his nation that he couldn't sleep. And his assistant was in an adjacent bed, and this man's tossing and turning was keeping the assistant awake. And finally, the assistant said to him, Sir, may I ask you a question? 
And of course, said Whitelock, sir, do you think God governed the world very well before you came into it? <laughs> well, certainly, he said, undoubtedly. And sir, uh, do you think that he will govern it quite as well when you're gone out of it? And he said, yes, of course. And then he said, sir, excuse me, but don't you think you can trust him right now to govern it quite as well while you're living? And Whitelock had no answer to that question, but he rolled over and soon he went to sleep. And the point of the psalm is, do you believe that God reigns not only over the world out there, but over your world and over all the circumstances that you're going to face this week? And if you believe he reigns, rejoice and be glad because God is for us. And if he is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 8, 32. Dear Lord, thank you for this encouraging psalm that you have written for our upbuilding in the faith. Lord, I pray that if any are here who do not know Jesus, that they might not walk out of this building before they have bowed before you and trusted in you as their Savior and Lord. And that those who are going through trials would know your comfort and your joy, even in the difficulties they're facing, because we know that you will work all things together for good to those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, we rejoice. Amen. I'm going to stand and